Lord, to the degree that we can see and understand what it is that this scripture holds out to us, to the degree that we're able to believe it and apply it is the degree to which your spirit comes to make it known to us in this time. Lord, we're dependent on you to see Christ in this text, to not see this as some kind of law through which our proper obedience makes you love us, but Lord, gospel and grace through which we can grow and flourish and have life. So I pray, Lord, by your spirit, would you help us to see and understand these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the fun things, one of the great benefits, I would say, of uh, having kids in elementary and middle school is the opportunity to revisit old classics with them that you read before when you were in elementary school and middle school but that you haven't had the chance to read through in a long time. That actually, outside of having your children read through it, you typically wouldn't be reading through it. So more recently, for me, this was rereading Wilson Rawls' classic, Where the Red Fern Grows, a story about a young boy, Billy Coleman, growing up in the Ozarks in Oklahoma, first, you know, dreams of owning a pair of coon hounds, training them, and realizes they cost way too much money for his family, and through a lot of effort and hard work, finally he makes this dream a reality. And as a young boy, I remember reading this, and it was just full of adventure and excitement and all of that. But there's this problem that he's faced with because he has these hounds that he has to train, but he realizes, you know, in order to train these hounds to hunt raccoons, first he needs a raccoon skin. And he has no idea how he's going to do that because... You know, his pups haven't been trained to hunt raccoons. So it's like a chicken and the egg problem, right? Okay. So his grandpa comes along and teaches him a trick. He says, all right, do this once and only once, but there's this technique where here's what you do. You, you drill a hole in the top of a log. And then you put this, you cut out this shiny piece of tin. And you put that tin down inside the log so that when the raccoon is running, comes along, he's walking or running across the log, the shiny object catches his attention and he reaches his paw down and you know the hole is just big enough for him to get the paw down in there but it's not big enough for him to get it out unless he lets go of the shiny object, right? And the, the grandpa says, listen, the key to this technique is that he won't let go. Even to save his own life, he won't let go. And Billy doesn't believe him. He starts crying because he thinks Grandpa's teasing him. But he says, no, seriously, I'm not, I'm not putting you on here. Go try this. And so he does it. And sure enough, after a little bit of time, he comes to find this raccoon in his trap. His paw deep inside the, the log, unwilling to let go of the shiny tin, even though it means... He's going to be caught and killed, right? And the grandpa uses this as an opportunity to teach. He talks about it as a classic example of misplaced priorities because he admonishes Billy to use this trap once and just once because he needs the skin to train the hounds. But he says, look, it's unsportsmanlike to continue to use it because it's just the nature of the raccoon, you know? His nature is to have these misplaced priorities, his nature is to value this shiny, worthless object 
over his own life. To not let go. To get so distracted by that which has very little value that he loses sight of something as valuable as his own life. Right. And, you know, that theme in the book, so it continues on as something of a theme in the book in some ways too, with some of the characters. But it also stands as something of a parable for us as well. By our nature, we're a people of that kind of misplaced priority. That severe of a misplaced priority. It's so easy for us to get distracted by the small and the meaningless while there are real and serious issues abounding all around us. We're too distracted to see it. You know, like, we can think of about 20 different ways that this plays itself out in life, right? We do this in the political arena. We get really worked up about relatively small issues while ignoring or downplaying much bigger problems and issues. We do this in the relational arena by prioritizing our own reputation or desire to be right over the relationship with another person. We do this in the occupational arena by spending the least amount of our work Monday through Friday on essential things and like 80% of our work statistically toward things that are non-essential because we think we have to do them. So this happens in, in every arena of life, but in the text this morning, the illustration goes further as Jesus sees an opportunity here to teach his disciples related to their own earthly priorities the things that they valued, the things that they've treasured, and how he comes to give them eternal priorities. Okay, so if you haven't already, turn with me to John 4. We continue this narrative of Jesus and his disciples in Samaria. Much thanks to Matthew for leading us in the text last week so well, in which Jesus had this encounter, if you remember, with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. While he's having this encounter, for our purposes in review, the disciples had gone into town to buy food. That's an important note to make, given what Jesus is about to talk about here in the text. So they'd gone away to buy food in verse 8. Now they've returned in verse 27. They're surprised that Jesus has been talking to this woman from Samaria, and it's in this confusion now that we see five parts of the narrative, that's the outline, five parts of the narrative that show the priorities of Jesus that he holds out to his people. Five parts of the narrative that show Jesus' priorities that he holds out to a people with misplaced priorities that tend to value the worthless or get distracted by that which has little value rather than seeing the eternal priorities, an eternal perspective. So let's start first with the context, verses 31 to 32. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So first we ask, like anytime we come to a text, anytime you're at home reading the Bible, or collectively we're reading the Bible together in Bible study community groups, or here uh, together on Sunday morning. We need to ask, what's happening here in the narrative? That's the context. What's the context of the events that are taking place here that we might understand what's happening? And, and in these first two verses of the section, we see the context. It's a, it's a teaching or discipleship opportunity from Jesus to the disciples because Jesus' disciples have returned 
And as the text already mentioned last week, they were amazed that Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman. But the text also says that they didn't say what was on their minds. Do you remember? They had these questions in their minds that they didn't dare speak out loud. Specifically, why are you talking with her? You see it in verse 27. And perhaps in a roundabout way of now getting to these questions or, or pushing Jesus past this conversation, the disciples now urge Jesus to shift his focus from this conversation with a Samaritan woman that surely can lead him nowhere good from their perspective to something more immediately important. Jesus needs to eat. It's been a while since he's had food. He's been so focused on this other conversation that the dis disciples clearly didn't prioritize, that he hasn't had time to do that which they, in this text, do prioritize. You know, going through Samaria does not appear to have been a priority for the disciples. It's far outside of their comfort zone. As we saw last week, it was certainly a priority of the Lord. The text told us in verse 4, do you remember he had to pass through Samaria? I don't think this is likely saying that Jesus felt pressure of time to get to Galilee as quickly as possible, so he just takes a shortcut. Surely there were other means of getting from Galilee to Judea. In fact, nearly all first century Jews would go around Samaria to get to Judea rather than through it. Nevertheless, the text says he had to go. He was compelled to go. This was his father's will. It was his father's plan. It was his own desire. Despite the deep resentment and animosity between these two people groups that Matthew highlighted and explained so well for us last week, Samaria was a priority for Jesus. The disciples, though, have their minds on other, th other things. They have their hands around have their paws around a, a particular piece of tin at the moment. It's distracted them. The text says they're urging him to eat something, to focus his attention back on what matters really so that they can continue their journey. That's what food is for. It's to give you sustenance to continue your journey, right? My sense of the text is the disciples are very uncomfortable in Samaria. They're wanting to get through. So Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. We really see the love of Jesus here for us and for his disciples, you know. Because Jesus here sets aside his own physical desires. The priorities of the disciples, which could really benefit them, because he sees an opportunity to, in love, focus in on his disciples' hearts. And teach them, disciple them. You know, like, Jesus is almost certainly both still very thirsty, as he said he was in verse 7, middle of the day, and very hungry. He hasn't eaten. He's focused instead on an opportunity, though, for teaching and discipling surrounding this particular conversation of priorities. He set those things aside because he loves his disciples and he wants to teach them. We start to see his priorities emerge almost immediately from that. That's the context. The context of this section is a teaching discipleship opportunity. And that leads us secondly now to the confusion that Jesus seeks to address. Why is a discipleship opportunity needed? Well, because the disciples are confused. There's confusion here. Verse 33. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? 
they start asking one another, did, did, did you get them something to eat? I've said this before, you know, in pretty much every narrative we've preached at Gospel Life Church, you know, but our tendency is to put ourselves above the disciples and the characters of the scriptures when we read the text here and say, you know, we wouldn't say this at community group, we wouldn't say this at men's Bible study on Wednesday night or women's Bible study on Monday night. But we say it kind of to ourselves, like, what a bunch of morons, you know? Like, we hear Nicodemus saying, how can someone be born again? Can he go back into his mother, mother's womb for the second time? And we're like, come on, Nicodemus, really? We hear the woman at the well thinking that Jesus is talking about literal water that will make her never thirst again, you know? And we're like, oh, that poor woman, she doesn't get it. We hear the disciples now asking, has anyone brought him something to eat? And we're like, silly disciples, don't they understand, you know? And it's interesting because now back to back to back, we've seen leaders like Nicodemus, outsiders like the woman at the well, and now followers like Jesus' disciples all miss the purpose of his words and display something of a materialistic ignorance, as Grant Osborne calls it. It's a set of priorities that are driven entirely by what's immediately in front of them. They can't grasp the spiritual. But it's happening with every character. Why? Because this is all of our problems. We put ourselves above the disciples. But the reality is, this is us. Okay. They've missed the purpose of the coming of Jesus in this moment. They've focused on food for the stomach. Rather than the eternal food that Jesus has been feeding this woman. And that now he's, he's serving up to them. The nature of this confusion is really the confusion between two things, okay? The, the temporal priorities that we're always so enamored with and the eternal priorities of Jesus, okay? We see the temporal priorities that we're always so enamored with and the eternal priorities of Jesus. Before we go further, because there'll be more to be said on this, the text will address it, right? But let me say a couple of clarifying words. The nature of this confusion, and this is important, it isn't to suggest that earthly things don't matter. Right? Like there's a way to read texts like this and almost use them as trump cards over against other areas of scripture and proceed forward in this like near legalistic way of applying something that I think adds to biblical confusion. What I mean is there are areas in which Biblical wisdom dictates that we find ways to provide for our family, to help with the material well-being of the sick and the needy. We're called to that. To keep our children safe, to keep others safe around us in our community, you know. And we should make decisions at times surrounding those realities. The disparity that the text is drawing out is not here to suggest at all, to say at all, that these things don't matter. The reason for drawing out the confusion is so that we can see how easily we can get so comfortable focusing on our earthly needs that we actually fail to see life from the eternal perspective. Our obsession with materialism can often distract us entirely from things that are eternal. We just can't see anything else, let alone prioritize things rightly. Because here you have Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, who's come to save his people, holding that salvation out to the world at this moment. Like the disciples have a front row seat. 
and they're focused on the temporal. They can't see what's actually happening in front of them. Okay? So that's the tension. We see that tension even more clearly when we move from this confusion that the disciples have in thinking temporally rather than eternally to now thirdly the correction. The context, the confusion, and now the correction that Jesus gives them. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And again, we see the love of Christ for us because though internally our instinct might be to read the scriptures in places like this and mock the disciples and no, 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 you know, kind of thing. Jesus doesn't mock them. Jesus doesn't harshly rebuke here. His correction is this. He's saying, while the disciples are focused on sustenance and satisfaction that physical food offers them in this moment to continue on in their journey, to keep moving out of Samaria where they're deeply uncomfortable toward where they would be more comfortable, that, that, that food will sustain them in their journey, that it'll satisfy their hunger, which is, like, this is true. Have you ever been on a journey, like a really long road trip with your family or with a group of friends and you're going a long distance and it's been a long day, you know, driving can be tiring and, or, or, or whatever the nature is of your journey and then the day ends like in a restaurant together and just that food, you, you, by the end of the day, you're growing tired with one another, there's some snippiness, some bad temperedness in the car. That food brings like sustenance, satisfaction helps you think about the next leg of your journey that it's actually possible, you know. So food does that, right? Um, there's no question about it. But Jesus says here, a greater sustenance and satisfaction is found in doing the Father's will. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is pointing back again to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, in which Moses is speaking to Israel and he's explaining, don't you know what God has done for you? And he says this, Moses says, the Lord humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. So he's talking about this Old Testament text in which Israel, it's in the wilderness, they can't find food, they're entirely dependent on God to provide, they're hungry, and God provides them with this bread from heaven that brings real satisfaction to them. And he says, he says, so he says, to teach you, right, feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Did you catch that? Okay, two things. First, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna in order to teach you that he satisfies, that he satisfies far greater than anything else that you might attempt to put in his place, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But then primarily the point is here you have the word, the eternally preexistent second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Here you have the word entered into human history to save his people, holding out a truer and better satisfaction to God's people than anything the world offers them. And the reality is that without him holding that out to us, we wouldn't be able to find it, okay? Because 
if our food is to do the Father's will, and we're unable to see or understand that, his will. We're able to, unable to see or understand it, as Nicodemus was unable to see it and understand it, as the woman at the well has not understood, as the disciples do not understand, then how can we possibly attain the kind of life that Jesus is talking about here? Like, we were created for this kind of sustenance and satisfaction. We were created to do the Father's will and to therefore have the joy of doing the Father's will, but our sin made it impossible for us. So how can we be satisfied? How can we be sustained? And Jesus in this text Again, I think that there's this real window into his love for us. He says, it's through me. It's through my work. I hold this out to you. Like, as Barrett writes, he says, indeed, all of Jesus' ministry is nothing other than, so this is what Jesus came to accomplish. It's nothing other than submission to and performance of the will of the one who sent him. Once the cross is firmly in view, so all this centers in on the cross, Jesus can pray, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. We could not do the Father's will. Do you know that? We're going to come back to that. But we could not do the Father's will. We could not have this food of sustenance and satisfaction. We couldn't do it. But Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's what he's saying here. He's holding it out. It's in him so that now our hearts are changed forever to follow him. And he later on is going to tell us, I am the bread of life. All right. And because our hearts are changed to follow him, we can now move from the correction, this reality that greater sustenance and satisfaction is found in the Father's will, to now fourthly the command. The command, set your eyes with me on verses 35 to 38. Jesus says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap That for which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. There's so much here that we actually don't have time for. I encourage you, as you have questions about the text, come to the Q&A after the service. But here we find a command from the Lord to his people. It's an imperative in the text. From Jesus to his disciples at large, instructing us to see the spiritual need of the world around us in order that we might proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world around us. So the same good news that we just talked about. Jesus living the life that we should have lived but failed to live. We could not do the Father's will. Doing that perfectly before the Father, but then standing in our place as our substitute at the cross taking on the punishment that we deserve because we failed to live that life so that now we can have life in him. So we're commanded here, being reminded of that gospel in the previous section, to hold out that gospel to the surrounding world. In fact, as we go through the New Testament, we'll see this is the purpose of the church. All right. To lift up our eyes from our temporary perspective to see the harvest. Jesus is using an earthly metaphor 
to picture a spiritual reality as he often does, right? He's saying, look, so farmers normally have, they plant, right? And then they have four months before they can harvest. So if a farmer goes out and plants a bunch of seed and then like two hours later gets out the harvester, he's going to be very disappointed. We all know this, right? He has to wait. But Jesus is saying for this harvest that he's talking about, the harvest of those hearing the gospel and then coming to faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait any longer. There's no gap, right? You don't have to wait any longer. The work has now been done in Christ. He is here. The eschatological age is dawning. The time has come. The kingdom is at hand. You don't have to wait any longer to proclaim the gospel of Christ to your friends, neighbors, co-workers, those who are far from him, that they might know and love God. You know, verse 36 says, the reaper's employed, you guys. He's on the payroll. He's already receiving wages for his work. He's not sitting around. There's no gap. This is our calling. So we talk a lot about this at Gospel Life Church because it's important to understand. So this is a command, and that command follows this, this gospel correction, right? So how does this work? In general terms, what we find in the scriptures can be placed in the categories of either indicative or imperative. Something that we're going to start coming back to in John, I'll deal with it a little more in depth now and then just point you back to this later on. But it's a little bit of a generality, but what we find is indicative and imperative in the scriptures by way of reminder. Indicative is telling the reader what already has been done for us. Okay, It teaches that which has already taken place already. Something that was done. Okay, An imperative is a command. It's an instruction of what we are to do. All right, And the scriptures hold out both. But the way the scriptures hold out both to the life of the Christian really matters. Because what we find is that these imperatives over here actually flow out of the indicatives. What we're commanded to do flows out of what Christ has already accomplished. In other words, what Jesus has done so transforms our hearts that now we begin to desire, not perfectly, but we begin to desire to do the things that reflect gospel belief in our lives. The, the men at Gospel Life talked about this a little bit this last Wednesday night when we worked through Galatians chapter 3 together. Every discipleship failure in the human heart, every single one, is really rooted in gospel unbelief. It's rooted in an aspect of our lives that we really haven't applied the gospel to or maybe we haven't understood or perhaps we've given the gospel some kind of, the good news of Jesus and what he's come to accomplish, some kind of mental assent that, yeah, you know, cognitively I know this is true, but the coins haven't really dropped in a way that would demonstrate that we actually believe it to be true in a particular area. And listen, we all have this. We all have the need for the gospel every day, every Sunday as we gather because of this, right? And this is important because, you know, related to how indicative and imperative function in the Bible, there are two, two errors of the church that can rob us of the gospel. There's an error of legalism in which we think we have to do something to earn our own righteousness or we can somehow gain God's approval of, or affection, gain the approval of or affection of others in the church on the basis of our obedience, you know, how good we are, how much we pray, how much we read our Bibles, what our church attendance is like, you know. There's this legalism attached. 
And the scriptures say, no, you can't do it. Like, you can't do the Father's will. You can't do it. It's a fool's errand. It only leads to either a false pride that believes you actually did it or inward turmoil and depression when you think you can't do it, when you realize you can't do it, right? Because all of us eventually will, this despondency that actually drives us further from Christ. So legalism is not for the good of God's people. At the same time, there's also an error known as antinomianism, anti-law, which says it doesn't matter how you live. You can just live like the rest of the world and live in persistent, unrepentant sin. I'm not talking about struggling with sin here. I'm talking about saying, yeah, I know that's sin, but I desire it and I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm still a Christian because it's all grace. But that's also not in line with the imperatives and commands we find in Scripture and the reality that if you look like the rest of the world in persistent, unrepentant sin and demonstrate a life that's not in line with, with the gospel, the New Testament doesn't hold false hope out to you that you believe the gospel. It's, it's not for the good of God's people because it views the grace of God as cheap grace. Functions more like salvation vaccines. That's like, oh, I'm good. And I can just go live life however I want, right? Rather than a life-transforming, joyful love of Christ that changes the desires of the human heart which is what the gospel truly is. So how does this work then? Well, the imperatives flow out of the indicatives. The imperative here, lift up your eyes, is a command that Jesus' followers are called to obey. A gospel life church, we are to lift up our eyes and see the harvest. We're going to say more on that toward the end. We're commanded to do this, but the reason we're now able to do it, right? apart from Christ, we can't do it. Can't do the Father's will. He came to do that for us, which we can never do for ourselves. But the reason now we're able to do it is because Jesus lifted his eyes and saw us in our need and put on flesh and dwelt among us. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. And if he who from eternity past, you guys, had everything he needed perfectly, perfect love from within the Godhead, and he left his home in heaven to come down into human history that we might know God. When we see and understand and believe the extent of his love for us, how can we do anything less than set aside our merely temporal distractions in this world in order to proclaim the good news of Jesus in the world around us? Why? Because his love transforms our hearts. Now, another way of saying this is, Matthew talked a lot about worship last week because there was this statement from Jesus that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Why is that? How's that tied here? Well, it's in the context because worship shapes who, what we worship shapes who we are. You know, like we become like that which we worship. We can, in other words, we can very easily as Christians at times give mental assent to gospel things. We can say like, oh yeah, that's what the gospel is. That's who Jesus is. I, I know my Bible really well. I read my Bible. I come to church and I, cognitively I can say, yes, I believe that. But the problem is that I'm actually worshiping something else. Peter Lightheart has this great quote that actually helps us understand not just that, but when we understand that what we worship shapes how we live, shapes who we are, um, we start to see what's happening in the world around us. He says, it is a fundamental truth of Scripture that what we become, that, that we become like 
whatever or whomever we worship. When Israel worshipped the gods of the nations, she became like the nations, bloodthirsty, oppressive, full of deceit and violence, Jeremiah 7. Romans 1 confirms this principle by showing how idolaters are delivered over to sexual deviations and eventually to social and moral chaos. The same dynamic is at work today. Western humanists worship man with the result that every degrading whim of the human heart is honored and exalted and disseminated through the organs of mass media. By worshiping idols, human beings become speechless, blind, deaf, unfeeling, and crippled. But then these are precisely the afflictions that Jesus in the gospel came to heal. So we pray as Christians for this massive display of the glory and character and attributes of God that we see in the gospel to change who we are. We worship, and that worship shapes us. The good news is that while we proclaim this gospel, we can also know that the labor of the prophets in pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah, the labor of John the Baptist in preparing the way for the Messiah, and then the labor ultimately of Jesus himself going to the cross, the ultimate labor, the ultimate work, has already been done so that we might reap for that which we did not labor, but he did. Right? And in the case the disciples don't believe, in case they look at this and they're skeptical, because I think that's Listen, I think that's one of the main reasons why we don't evangelize. I think one of the reasons we don't evangelize is because we don't believe what Jesus says here. When he says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. We lift up our eyes and we're like, uh, that doesn't look like white with harvest to me. You know, the disciples were lifting up their eyes and they were, they were looking at Samaria. And they were like, that doesn't look white. Like fields white ready for harvest to me, Jesus. That looks like a lot of animosity. That looks like a lot of tension and conflict. And Christians in our world, man, it is the same thing, same dynamic. We lift up our eyes and we see animosity between the world and Christian worldview. <laughs> and we think, no, fields are, the fields are white, aren't white. With There's a skepticism that makes us less likely, I think, to engage because we think, I, mean, we, I think we doubt what Jesus is saying here. And, and so, in case the disciples don't believe, just in case there might still be some skepticism within their heart that the time is now, that the harvest is ready right now. We move from the command to lift their eyes and see to now the case study. From the command to the case study immediately before them. Verses 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Stop right there. The very next sentence after Jesus gives this command and describes that the fields are white with harvest. Give us an example of the Samaritan woman lifting her eyes, seeing the harvest in Samaria, and many believing because of her testimony. You guys, like the text immediately backs up Jesus' claim. Jesus is saying, wake up and see what's happening right here before your very eyes. You have a front row seat to this, you guys. It's an immediate example in which Jesus' disciples can now see for themselves that what Jesus says is true that the time of the harvest is here, that the fields are ready. How ready were they? Keep reading. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. 
For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You guys, this is a massive statement for these Samaritans, these first century Samaritans, to make about the nature of Jesus. Just this verse alone. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. Here you have Samaritans who despised the Jewish people, asking this Jewish rabbi to stay two more days with them, to teach them. Showing this conviction that they had that he must be this prophet like Moses that the scriptures had held out to them. The one that the Jews called the Messiah that the Samaritans called the Taheb. The Taheb is the Samaritan version of the Messiah, right? Not only so, but many more have come to see for themselves and on the basis of their own examination of Jesus, they've come to believe these astounding words that he is indeed the Savior of the world. So if you're here this morning and you're a non-believer, you were brought with friends here to Gospel Life Church this morning and you're not sure what you think about Jesus and you're trying to figure that out, be encouraged that Jesus' invitation is to see for yourself. Examine for yourself. Don't just believe on the basis of your friend's testimony. Your friend's testimony is obviously important and that's good. But here you have an invitation for yourself to examine Jesus for yourself, to look into the scriptures for yourself, to see his heart and his love. And they conclude on the basis of that examination, this is indeed the savior of the world, which again, this is such a striking statement. So Grant Osborne cuts to the very core of this claim that they now make about Jesus. He, he writes, these Samaritans in becoming believers, have realized that their Teheb was actually the Jewish Messiah. It's hard to put into words how crazy this would be in a first century context. So he continues, in doing so, they are the first proof, you guys, that Jesus has come, not just for the Jews, but for the world with themselves, the Samaritans. The first harvest of this new age of salvation for all peoples through the work of Christ. Okay, so what do we see in this text? Here we have the reality that apart from Christ, we lack vision in the same way that the disciples lack vision in this text. And we simply will not let go of the shiny, worthless object in the whole even if it's the expense of spiritual life. But because of the work of Christ on our behalf, because he came to do the Father's will perfectly to stand in our place, we can now look up and see how God has readied the people around us for the harvest. He's readied this time. He's come and he's done his completed work. He said it is finished. Now is the time of salvation. Today is the day. Our task in the text is clear, and this is the central theme. Proclaim the gospel, plant, and win people for Christ, harvest. That's the central theme of this text. Proclaim the gospel, plant, plant seeds of the gospel, win people for Christ, harvest. And this is really the mission of the church, you know. Proclaim the gospel, plant, win people to Christ, that there might be more who worship him, harvest, right? And I, I, I want to... Apply that text to the church because the purpose of the church is to proclaim this gospel to the surrounding world, that people might worship him, that we might make disciples of all nations. So if this is our purpose as a church, we should spend a little time here at the tail end unpacking exactly how this text interacts with our church life. Because there are quite a few ways where it does that. So three areas 
of broad application for the church, three pastoral reflections on the text. First, number one, this text stands as the grounding for the eternal priority of evangelism in the life of the church. This text stands as the grounding. One of many texts. I mean, we see this in the heart of Christ throughout the Gospels. The grounding for the eternal priority of evangelism in the local church. And that's particularly important for us because, listen, our, our vision statement, you know, the way that our mission statement and vision statement work, it's very much like this indicative imperative, right? So it's like our, our mission statement, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus. For his glory in the city is good. All of us need more gospel belief that Jesus has accomplished everything for the believer. And everything in our life needs to be rooted and founded in that gospel of grace. And that indicative of what Christ has done brings about this imperative, meaningfully and relationally engaging skeptics with the good news of Jesus. Guys, meaningfully and relationally engaging skeptics, those who are far from the Lord, those like the Samaritan woman or Nicodemus or the disciples before they're called to Christ. That's just what Jesus commands us here. Right? We need to ask ourselves, what do we think Jesus is communicating when he talks about lifting your eyes to see those who are far from him, to proclaim the gospel that they might know him? Jesus is, say Jesus is saying this here. John says, that's why I'm writing this to you. Right? Do we remember John 20, 31? He says, I'm writing that those who don't know Christ might know him and believe. Those who are far from God might come to be reconciled to him through the work of Christ the purpose of the church and because it's the purpose of the church it's uniquely the vision of our church one of the implications of the gospel is that we'll proclaim the gospel to the surrounding world to have as many spiritual conversations with non-believers as we possibly can in the time that God's given us that's one of the reasons why we planted a new church one of the core convictions that our launch team had in planting gospel life church was to share Christ with as many people as we can. Why? Because the fields are white for harvest right here and right now. Not tomorrow, not somewhere else, right now, well, somewhere else too, but here also, <laughs> right now, and in, in Crystal, Minnesota, and in our neighborhoods and workplaces and in our families and wherever God places you. So, first I think it's important to highlight that Jesus' statement here is the grounding for our mission and vision as a church. It's the purpose of the church. It's the eternal priority of evangelism in, in the local church. Second, this text contrasts, then, our temporal, earthly priorities that often get in the way with that and the eternal priorities of Jesus. It contrasts that intentionally. Why? In order to help us apply the gospel as a church and to become more like Jesus. Like, the reason that the text shows this disparity between my priorities and Jesus' priorities is so that mine might come into line with his. What I mean is, listen, it's very easy in the life of the local church to get so caught up in good things. Like, good things. Things that we enjoy. Things that aren't unimportant. But things that can nevertheless distract us from mission. Things that can make us comfortable, you know, it's pretty uncomfortable going through Samaria. Things that can make us comfortable so that we don't lift up our eyes. It's easy to miss our calling, to miss the harvest due to temporal realities in the local church. Buildings, events, programs, things that can make the church so busy with comfortable things within the church that we never have time to lift up our eyes and see the fields. 
I talked about this a little bit at our newcomer's lunch, and quite a few people commented afterwards that it was particularly helpful to them. So let me reiterate it here. There is a way to fill our church calendar with program after program and event after event. So we all become so busy with a set of priorities that we establish that make us comfortable from within the church that we strip the neighborhoods in which we live and work of the mission, field, of the mission force of Christians. We don't want to ever have it be at Gospel Life Church because people might come to GLC and it's like, wow, they're pretty pared down. There's not like event after event after event here. Well, that's intentional. Because we don't want to ever have it be the case that we're so busy from within the church being comfortable here with one another that we're like, well, I would have dinner with my non-believing neighbors. I would invite a non-believing friend to certain things. But I don't don't even have time for those relationships because I'm so busy in the life of the church. I'm volunteering in like 12 different places. And very often from within Western Christendom, that's the approach we've taken. And then we're surprised when so much of the culture feels disconnected from the life of the church. So we don't want to ever have that be the case. Now listen, as I said on the front end of this, all these things that I just mentioned, these programs and events, they can be really good things. They're not valueless at all. But the, the important thing is to ask the question, it's important to ask the question, where do my priorities reflect my own personal comfort rather than the eternal priorities of Jesus? In lifting my eyes in mission. Okay. But that leads me to my last reflection, guys, because this is the most important one. It's quite possible for us to frame this command to evangelize, like to say, okay, first of all, this is the grounding for evangelism, and it's the purpose of the church. Second of all, our priorities are often out of line with Jesus, and therefore, to talk about this command to evangelize is one giant guilt trip. But that's not what Jesus does here. This text shouldn't hit us in the sense of what's wrong with you? Why don't you get it? Don't you know that Jesus is offended by all these open seats, right? So I've talked about that. Like, there's this approach to evangelism where it's like, what's wrong with you guys? Not at all how Jesus talks about it here. Not at all how the Christian church encourages and admonishes one another toward evangelism shouldn't strike us that way. The text should instead hit us as a reminder of the sheer grace that we've been given in the gospel of Christ and an encouragement to see how that really does shape us to interact with the world around us. So the way to encourage one another to lift up our eyes and see the harvest is to consistently and lovingly remind one another that Jesus lifted his eyes and saw us. The way to encourage one another to love others within the church and outside of the church, to be involved in our care ministries that sees people in their need, it's not to lay a guilt trip on, but it's to to say that he first loved us, to remind one another consistently and lovingly that Jesus first loved us. The way to encourage each other to share the gospel with others is to routinely share the gospel with one another. Because listen, all of us have areas of life in which there's sin and failure. We need to apply the gospel of grace. And we do that together. We apply it together. Because we proclaim it here to one another. We recognize none of us are coming in with this like tier of high level, you know, I'm varsity evangelist. We're all in need of gospel graces. We're all in need of gospel reminders. We're all in need of gospel indicative to then 
push us forward together in grace and love toward this gospel imperative. And so we do it weekly. We do it here at the table where we get this visual representation of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has done it all. All to him we owe. You know, I'm reminded of the words that we sang even this morning. Now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered. Great the welcome that I receive. Boldly I approach my Father, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There is no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon that cross. So we come forward to proclaim the cross to one another. I invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus, to come and take these elements so that we can back to your seats so that we can proclaim it to one another. If you're not a believer, come forward, observe, look, move along. This is a meal for believers. We want there's no pressure for you to take. And in fact, every reason for you to, to come and observe and, and walk with us. But come forward now and, and take these elements to your seats and we'll proclaim this gospel to one another.